The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening. This is uh, Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, today's f- discussion and today's talk is uh, similar to the one that we had last week, which is uh, actually a very, very interesting topic, uh, in part anyway, on the nature of papyrus and what we understand by combining written texts and archaeology in the classic world. Uh, the past program that we had, we discussed the ro- role of the Ptolemies in Egypt and how uh, the texts, the papyrus texts, gave us a tremendous amount of insight into social and economic issues that were otherwise completely hidden and unknown archaeologically and in terms of reconstructing classic lifeways. Uh, we had discussed uh, the development, of, uh, oddly enough, of the police and the infrastructure of civil unrest and and uh, order, law and order in Ptolemaic uh, Egypt. And today's discussion is a little bit similar to that because we are going to be talking to another papyrology expert. And uh, in this case, we're also going to be talking about uh, ancient Egypt, antique Egypt of around approximately the same time. But there will also be an increased focus on society in general and also on archaeological excavation. Uh, my guest is uh, Dr. Itze Dijkstra, whose research centers on how religion became transformed in late antiquity. And again, we're talking about approximately the same period, starting around 500 BC. And we are talking about religious transformation. And Dr. Dijkstra's perspective is uh, unique and also one that that uh, has a lot of repercussions and, and implications for contemporary discussions of ethnic conflict, religion, and the formation of minority groups in, uh, let's call it, uh, majority societies. He is the author of a monograph on the religious transformation in the first cataract region in southern Egypt, and particularly the island of Philae. And uh, he is currently uh, responsible for a very intriguing expert, uh, exhibit 
at the Institute for the Study of uh, Ancient World here in New York City. And I would like to welcome Dr. Dijkstra to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for the kind introduction. <laughs> uh, yeah, just uh, I, I'm not uh, responsible for the exhibit as such. Uh, I, I gave a talk uh, in their uh, lecture series. Uh, I see. But uh, yeah, but but uh, you're involved. You you obviously this was a well attended talk because I yeah. heard quite a bit about it, and so I just want to uh, get some information about the exhibit and would like to lead into uh, your very intriguing uh, research in the uh, elephantine community, uh, ancient community. So tell us a little bit about the exhibit and the work that you've done. Yeah. So, uh, well, thank you uh, for uh, this uh, opportunity. <laughs> uh, so the, the exhibit is called When the Greeks Ruled Egypt. Uh, it's uh, at the uh, Institute of the Study of the Ancient World of New York University, and uh, uh, it's uh, actually started on October 8th, so it's quite a, a recent exhibit. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I gave a talk, uh, an opening talk in a lecture series for the exhibit, uh, in which I discussed uh, four papyri that are on display uh, in the Institute's uh, halls where the exhibit is held. And uh, so they date to the 5th century BCE, and they are in Aramaic, which is uh, quite, uh, quite interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. Aramaic is, of course, a forerunner of Hebrew. And why don't you tell us a little bit about Aramaic and what kind of insights you got from these particular papyri um, with respect to the language and the insights that it provided into the ancient community of Elephantine. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So um, the Aramaic uh, is uh, the was the language in the fifth century, sort of lingua franca, like uh, like English nowadays, uh, spoken by many people around the world. Uh, and in that case, it was the the main language of the Persian Empire. And uh, Persia had uh, invaded uh, or had uh, uh, taken over Egypt. So we're a bit before the Ptolemies that were discussed in the last program, as I understand. Right. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it, it's uh, one of the largest sources for Aramaic in this period. We, ha we do have uh, many other Aramaic papyri from Bactria, that's as far away as Afghanistan. Um, but uh, those from Elephantina are, uh, are quite uh, numerous. So we can, uh, we can deduce from them a lot about, um, about Egypt in the 5th century BCE, how the uh, Persian administration worked, uh, and so on. You were saying that the uh, that Aramaic was the lingua franca at the, in the fifth century BCE, really. And uh, what was the alphabet uh, from the Hebrew alphabet, or how how was it? I mean, because contemporary Hebrew liturgy uses a lot of Aramaic as well, and the the Jewish Talmud, of course, is in Aramaic as well. So, why don't you give us a little bit of background on Aramaic? Because I think a lot of people would be interested in that. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it, it is surprising that uh, when the Persians uh, took the, the power in uh, Mesopotamia that they uh, didn't choose their own Indo-European uh, Persian language, but uh, Aramaic um, as their administrative language. So everywhere the Persian Empire was uh, in charge, they used uh, Aramaic as uh, administrative language. So in, in this uh, case, we... Yes. Yes, go ahead now, please. 
And in this case, so uh, we are in the on the southern frontier of Egypt, and so there are uh, mercenaries from all over the empire, so even uh, as far away as uh, Kazakhstan, um, Medes, uh, Babylonians, Persians, and also Jews. And and this was an administrative language. Was it spoken by uh, just people in the administrative sectors, or was it widely spoken in many other pockets of the ancient world at that time? Why, why don't you tell us what the yes. distribution of the language was in terms of demographics? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yes, indeed, it was uh, also a spoken language. So these uh, these multicultural societies, these pockets, as you say, uh, they 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 communicate with each other in in Aramaic. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, so so uh, even though they were from very different ethnic backgrounds. And what about uh, what about the uh, exhibit itself? What was the main objective of the exhibit, and what are you introducing in this exhibit that may be new to a lot of people who are both interested in the Mediterranean basin at that time and into the uh, are interested in the evolution of the empires um, in Egypt and also in the circum Mediterranean basin. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. So, so why should you go to the exhibit, basically? Uh, <laughs> that's um, one way to put it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, so. Um, as you know, the, these uh, these four papyri are dating before the Ptolemaic period, and so even though the exhibit uh, focuses on the the period period when the Greeks ruled Egypt, uh, in the period beforehand, we also have these multicultural this multicultural society with different languages and different ethnics uh, ethnicities, which uh, then continued into the uh, Greek world. So I think what the exhibit shows very nicely is how uh, how the Hellenistic uh, world, uh, the, the, when the Greeks ruled Egypt, how it is in a continuum with the previous period. So that appears both from uh, from the papyri, but also from some uh, statues and coins that are on display. So, what are the papyri in particular telling us? Uh, you mean those of 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 the Aramaic? Uh, yes, yes, the yeah, ones yeah. That, you, that you actually discussed in your yeah. presentation. Well, uh, yeah, uh, those Aramaic papyri are very interesting because uh, they focus on the Jewish community. So many uh, have been written for uh, or by members of that uh, Jewish community. And the interesting thing is that this is the earliest uh, well-documented Jewish community throughout history. It's 5th century BC. So we're talking here about the time of the biblical books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. So in this case, we could actually compare the the stories of the Bible with uh, how communities lived uh, in the diaspora uh, at this time. And you're really raising a very interesting point because I think a lot of people who are students, uh, either amateurs or professional students of, of, profe- of, of religion, really are curious and are exploring the nature of what is fact and what is fiction. And by that I mean, what do we know from the archaeological record and from the documentary record that sort of reinforces uh, impressions that we have about these communities and about, uh, about the, the Bible 
to some degree. What do we know about that? What do we know about the, the convergence of the different data sets, the papyrus, the archaeological mm-hmm. excavations, and how do they reinforce each other, or don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do in this case. Uh, so, so often, uh, often uh, we can find, for example, descriptions of houses, uh, house contracts in papyri. So they they have detailed uh, information. They provide us about detailed information about uh, this house uh, is uh, adjoining on the south to another house or to this street. But we cannot actually locate it in time. So often we cannot connect them to the archaeology. Uh, sometimes uh, when we excavate, we find detailed information about houses and uh, what went on in a house, uh, domestic ware and, and a fireplace and whatnot, but we cannot connect them to the papyri. And in this archive or in these archives, we can actually do that. So, like how? Uh, Give us a couple of examples of, of uh, yeah. you know, one, one of the, well, before we before I uh, get into that and and, yeah. and you get into that in any detail, I think one of the interesting uh, elements that a lot of people don't know, and and we reiterated this in our previous talk and several ones earlier when we were talking about things like Egyptian hieroglyphics, that a lot of these records that extend across the Circum-Mediterranean Basin and into the interior, into Mesopotamia, and uh, northward, northward into the Levant, these documentations are mundane day-to-day recordings of storehouses, warehouses, uh, commerce, exchange, not anything that's necessarily very dramatic, although that exists as well, but by and large, there are inventories. Uh, are, are these papyri a little different, or are they giving you similar types of information? You mentioned something about structures, houses. Are they telling yeah. us sort of the architecture? What are they telling us? Yeah, well, uh, so in this case, uh, we can actually connect the archaeology with the papyrology because uh, the uh, recent excavations uh, have actually brought to light these very houses that are described in papyri. So in this case, we can actually walk around in a mud brick house that uh, in the 5th century BCE belonged to the Jew Hosea, for example. Okay. yeah. What do you know about him? What do you know about what he did and and how he he lived his life on a daily basis? Yeah. Well, in this particular case about Hosea, we don't know a lot more. <laughs> uh, okay. But uh, th- there are some other very interesting uh, life stories that uh, that are uh, that are told, uh, especially in these uh, four papyri uh, on exhibit uh, at uh, I saw in New York. What in particular? Yeah, well, uh, so uh, they are from uh, from the Brooklyn Museum, and uh, they tell the story of uh, Anania, uh, who uh, works in the Temple of Yahweh. Uh, so uh, th- this is a, another interesting aspect, uh, that there is a, a temple uh, existing in, uh, in, Jer- in Elephantine, uh, so let's say, uh, next to the one in Jerusalem. Because right. the idea is always that there is only one temple uh, for the Jews, but uh, in this period there existed uh, one in Elephantina too. Um, really, so, and and yeah. uh, I, I guess you know putting this in chronology. I mean, the, tradi- uh, the traditional uh, date of the destruction of the first temple is, uh, I believe, 586 BCE, and you're talking about developments, the documentation in the papyri, that were very shortly thereafter, correct? Or around that time? Yeah, the papyri date to the 5th century BCE. So, at that time, the uh, second temple had already been uh, rebuilt. Uh, 
Right. Uh, so that happened on the, at the start of the Persian uh, rule. So, yeah, so they were existing uh, beside each other. And tell us a little bit about the temple itself, and uh, yeah. how, how important was it? Was it important locally, regionally? Um, yeah. Because the second temple, like you say, was already starting to be reconstructed after yeah. its destruction. How important was the temple in Elephantine, and uh, why don't we know very much about it? Yeah, well, uh, it it uh, it is a very interesting story. Um, another interesting aspect is that this temple has actually been recovered in the uh, archaeological remains, uh, although almost nothing remains of it. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, as your question is, uh, what is its uh, impact? I think this, this temple was just used locally by the community. But it was clearly a major, major edifice for the people in the area, and since the community was very large, then it became a very, very significant ceremonial place, I assume. That's correct. Um, so uh, probably it, that is what I argued in, in that paper, that uh, in this multicultural society where we have uh, other Aramaic-speaking peoples who have their own temples of, of other gods, so Syrian gods uh, and, and gods from where they come from, uh, probably this, this Jewish community integrated into their society by also having uh, a temple to their god. And we will be back with our very, very interesting discussion with today's guest, Dr. Itzi uh, Dijkstra. Uh, after these words, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Ah, a nice glass of wine is very refreshing after the end of a long day. But have you ever considered the story behind the wine? Tune in to Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio. With your hosts, Roger and Donna Beery, you'll meet some of the people behind the world's wineries, travel the wine country, and learn more about that glass that you're enjoying. Roger and Donna will also give would-be vintners a behind-the-scenes look at starting a winery. Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio airs live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety.
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I have a very unique guest today. It's Dr. Itze Dijkstra, who is a member of the Faculty and Graduate Postdoctoral Studies at uh, at the University of Ottawa. And uh, if we are proceeding a core pace, we have been discussing the multicultural society of the community of Elephantine, which had a very dynamic and significant Jewish population. And uh, the professor has uh, spoken at the Institute for the Study of the Ancient World and discussed a number of papyri, which we discussed in the first segment, that document a lot of information and tell us a tremendous amount about uh, the world of the Greeks in Elephantine and in Egypt. Tell us a little bit, if you can, about what you know about Elephantine, its Jewish community, and how that community was either isolated or integrated into the greater Greco-Egyptian society at the time. Yeah. Well, uh, it's uh, it's both. So, uh, like uh, communities today, and that's where the, the parallel with, uh, with today uh, comes in, um, societies uh, or, or communities have to uh, integrate into society, while at the same time they want to try, uh, they want to uh, maintain their identity. So we have these both these aspects uh, we can actually find back in the papyri. And so tell us, you know, one of the things that's interesting, intriguing to me, especially uh, since we discussed in the first segment that Elephantine, uh, the, the, the Jews of Elephantine, rather, constructed their own temple. And this is uh, relatively shortly after the, the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the building of the second temple in Jerusalem. Uh, in Elephantine, how uh, were the Jews viewed? What was their role in the society, and how well integrated were they? Yeah, so they were mercenaries in the, uh, in the Persian uh, army, so they basically they came to, the, to southern Egypt for their work. Um, so uh, yeah, so so we have uh, we have a lot of information about uh, about the Jews, but it should not be forgotten that this is also because the finds we we did uh, mostly related to the Jewish community, but actually in the last couple of years, um, many more ostraca, so written uh, pot charts, uh, have been found. Right. Also, yeah, also in nearby uh, Aswan uh, that uh, tell us about the the other communities uh, that were living here. 
But I think one of the interesting things is, and, and, and again, I'd like to know what you have been able to uncover and what you've been able to reinterpret, if you will. This was a very turbulent period for the Jewish community, certainly, because it was, uh, it was in between temples, or like, like you said, the temple had just been reconstructed. And we're looking basically, uh, you call them mercenaries, but I'm guessing that would be the equivalent of migrant workers who... Uh, probably ended up there in part because of the dispersals and the diaspora following the destruction of the first temple. And were they, were they starting new um, occupations? Were they coming from a variety of different types of communities? What do you know about where they came from and how they established themselves in Elephantine? Or did, in fact, Elephantine have a longer-standing history of Jews living there uh, prior to the destruction of the first temple. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, the, well, the Jews. Uh, it is long known that uh, that uh, after the destruction of the temple in 586, that uh, many Jews went to uh, to Egypt, like they went to Babylonia. Right. Uh, but. I do think that in this case we can speculate because it's it's hard to reconstruct without evidence, but uh, that we can can say that uh, that these people, these Jews, came to Elephantina uh, while they were serving in the in the Persian army. So so I do think that that their reason for coming to Elephantina was purely work related, so migrant workers. What kind of work did they do? Uh, so yeah, so they they basically uh, so Elephantina is located on the southern frontier of Egypt, so so they were basically yeah uh, uh, guarding the frontier. I see. So there were yeah. border guards. There they were, were border, border guards. guards. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, do you have any idea how big that community was? Yeah, that's difficult to say. Uh, you know, uh, from the archaeology, we can reconstruct something, but uh, it's difficult to say. Perhaps a, a couple thousand uh, living there. It's it's not uh, it's it's antiquity, so it's it's not huge numbers. But uh, the, the the Jewish community was was evidently uh, sizable. Compared to other communities, I'd like you to talk a little bit, if you would, what we know about Elephantine, uh, not just in terms of the Jewish community, but certainly in terms of communities that had evolved there and had long-standing occupations there, and since it did seem like a melting pot to some degree of a variety of different types of ethnic groups that found their way into Egypt, into uh, Upper Egypt, I guess. Uh, tell us a little bit about what life was like and how these communities mixed. Who was the majority population? What other minority groups lived there? And how did they manage? Yeah, that's uh, that's a very interesting question uh, because, uh, in fact, we have a lot of information about uh, blending that these Jews were blending into their society. So, for example, we have uh, evidence for several intermarriages. So, in the the papyri on display in uh, New York, uh, we mm -hmm. have this uh, Anania who is married to. So he is a Jew and he he works in the Temple of Yahweh, and he is married to uh, to an Egyptian woman, Tamet. And uh, and the interesting thing of this uh, little uh, life story is that Tamet is actually a slave girl, a slave woman. Uh huh. Yeah. So that's interesting. What about what about questions of the judicial system and laws? I mean, you know, wherever you have 
uh, a variety of different ethnic groups intermingling, you have always the potential for some sort of conflict. And in this case, you have the Greeks, you have the Egyptians, and you have all these ethnic groups that are coming together at approximately the same time. How well did it work, and who was in charge? I would actually say that uh, that the that there is not a lot of evidence for conflict, so that they were blending in quite well in uh, society. We have, of course, uh, some tensions. Uh, so, for example, there's the interesting story of um, uh, the settlement of a dispute over uh, over a wall between uh, the houses of two people, uh, which is also sounds very familiar to uh, to us today. Uh, but but no major conflicts, as far as I see, in in, in the evidence. And these groups seem to get along. What was the population of the, of the city generally? Yeah, as I said, it's a bit difficult to say, uh, but a couple thousand, uh, say 5,000. Uh, I mean, it, it's always difficult to reconstruct how, how many uh, people live there, but uh, yeah. So in total, In total for the entire community? Yeah, for the entire community, yes. And it was considered a moderately sized uh, community at that time? or. Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's say a town, a border town. No, not, Tell us a little, uh, yes, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Not, not extremely populous, but also, but certainly uh, significant, uh, of significant size. Well, it was it was away from a lot of the main centers, and uh, apparently, it was, as you say, a unique community. Tell us a little bit about what the what kind of archaeology you've been doing over there. Yeah. Well, um, so. Um, I have not worked on the uh, the Temple of Yahweh and the the houses uh, surrounding it, uh, so that's a, a project that uh, that has long been worked on by the the Germans and the Swiss uh, on Elephantine Island since the 1960s. Uh, so I, I work currently work on the uh, Knum Temple, which is very nearby, uh, and where I record uh, graffiti of the Greco-Roman period. And these excavations, as you said, they go back a long ways. I mean, this is over, I'm guessing, 50 years of, of, of excavation. Mm-hmm. And I assume that there's a tremendous amount of progress that's been made. And how is our understanding of this uh, very uh, significant, if not very populous, hub of activity, how is our interpretation and our knowledge of that area increased over the past few years based on yeah. the archaeology? In your own work, right? Well, it is uh, it is one of the most uh, the, the the best excavated sites uh, in Egypt. Uh, I mean, the, the the advantage of Elephantine is that it is located uh, not underneath a modern city, like for example nearby uh, Aswan. Right. So we we can actually cut through time, basically uh, through ten, fifteen meters uh, of of uh, human uh, occupation, uh, going back uh, uh, further than the uh, the third millennium BCE. So it, it's a really extremely important site in Egypt. And it's a stratified site, clearly. Yeah. Um, and how you're saying it it goes down ten to fifteen meters. Yeah, some places, uh, you know, up to 20 meters. Okay, so when you're talking about 20 meters, I'm assuming 
that you're talking about architectural features, structural features that are implanted well into the ground, or is it a series of minor occupations that eventually resulted in a larger uh, city? Because uh, the structure of these archaeological sites is, is very different in places like Egypt than it is, for example, in the Levant and in uh, in the Mesopotamian area of approximately the same period. I mean, our, those, uh, those communities were very different. The structures were very different. Tell us a little bit about the archaeology of Elephantina. Yeah. Well, we have, uh, yeah, it, it's really uh, so layer by layer, layer for layer of, of, of different periods. We have uh, mud brick houses, many of them, uh, but also monumental structures. So the Temple of Knum, uh, it, it was one of the largest, uh, well, uh, a, a larger temple in Egypt when it was built. So it, it, it's a, a huge temple. Uh-huh. And the temple was how many? How many religious structures have you found? How many ceremonial structures have you found in Elephantina? And how do they break down in terms of the ethnic groups themselves? All right. Well, yeah, there are there are several temples. So uh, the temple of Knum is, is one, and we also have the uh, the temple of Satet. So uh, Satet was the the wife of of the, the god Knum. So we, we have that temple, and uh, in fact, in the foundations of that temple, uh, the, the uh, blocks of the previous versions have also been found. <laughs> so we have, we have several versions of the same temple, which could actually be, be visited uh, Interesting. Today. So you have certain yeah. stages. What's interesting to me, if you're looking at an archaeological site that has so many different sources of information to document its development and even its destruction, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, is that the convergence of the documentary record and the architecture and the archaeological structural record, if you will, that there seems to be, as you said earlier, a convergence. That, in other words, one uh, one methodology seems to support the other methodology, meaning archaeology supporting documentation, and that this seems to be well done. Uh, because in many records, in, especially in the Circum-Mediterranean Basin, when you have accounts, very often there are accounts uh, written by individuals from higher levels of, of a society that have an agenda. In other words, they look at things in a, in a far different way. Uh, for example, if it was a dominant dominant population, would look at it much more differently, much differently than uh, a minority population. Are you seeing any of that, or are you seeing that the dominant uh, demographic changes through time? How does that manifest itself in the archaeological record? Yeah, well, of course, uh, the archaeology and pap uh, papyri are two very different sources. So we also have uh, we always have to keep that in mind uh, with their own uh, limitations of use. But uh, so uh, when I uh, if I co come back to those uh, Aramaic papyri, uh, so the interesting thing was that by having these house contracts on papyrus, which tell us exactly where certain houses are located uh, in relation to the Temple of Yahweh, we could use this uh, this uh, this uh, ground plan uh, for reconstructing the archaeological remains that have been found since the 1990s. Right. And after this had been done, so we were able to to basically say which house belongs to belong to which owner in the fifth century BC. 
Uh, and after that, the, uh, the archaeology has been able to modify uh, what we know from the papyri. Uh, so, for example, uh, there was a, a, a wall built uh, close to the Yahweh temple, and uh, we now think that uh, this, this was the reason why the uh, temple of uh, Yahweh was destroyed. Really? Yes. That's very intriguing mm-hmm. and very critical information. Yes. Um, and, and are you finding that, uh, again, these papyri, how, how many, you have four on display, is that correct? Yeah, four on display, but uh, but there are several dozen uh, uh, Aramaic papyri relating to the Jewish community, and we're not speaking even of uh, of the several hundreds of Ostraka. Uh, and the Ostraka have a, a different set of information, obviously registered on them as well. Exactly. Yeah, there we come closer to what you said about uh, more, you know, registration, uh, small lists, uh, and these kinds of things. So they provide more limited information because they have a smaller writing service. Of course. And yeah. we will get back to this very intriguing discussion of uh, Elephantina, papyrus, and multiculturalism when we get back after these messages. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. We all love our best friend, especially when that best friend is a canine best friend. Now there's a show just for the dogs or the people who love them. Tune in to Dogs Rock Radio with host Pamela Hill. With your stories and advice from the experts, we'll show just how much love and purpose dogs bring to our lives and others around us. You'll also learn about canine fitness, training, and health and wellness. Make Dogs Rock Radio a weekly stop every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern on Voice America Variety. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Boomers Rock Radio with Tom Mack is ready to entertain, enlighten, and educate. Our show is all about quality of life, fitness, mental health, nutrition, self-improvement, finance, and more. As you grow older, you may actually have more questions. Tom is here to help. He'll invite experts from many facets of health, business, and life to bring the answers to you. Make Boomers Rock Radio your weekly stop on the Voice America Variety Channel every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific. Join us and improve your life. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with a very fascinating discussion today with uh, Dr. Itze Dijkstra, who uh, teaches at the University of Ottawa in Canada, and um, he has a very, very uh, intriguing uh, discussion and he, that is associated with a, a contemporary exhibit at the Institute of the Study of the Ancient World here in New York City, where he has been talking and displaying papyri that discuss the evolution and the uh, the evolution and growth of the Elephantina community, which uh, he calls a multicultural society in low in Upper Egypt, which of course is Southern Egypt. And one of the very fascinating elements of this, and especially vis-a-vis the Jewish community, is that there was in fact a temple there that was at least uh, in the same discussion as the temple in Jerusalem. And we were talking about this over the break, and, and uh, Dr. Dijkstra wanted to talk about the destruction of that temple. But before we get into that, I would like to know uh, the dimensions, because one, uh, the third book of the Bible uh, gives you in extreme detail a discussion of what the dimensions of the temple in Jerusalem were. I mean, the shape and the size and the the rituals and the performances and the players in the temple are very, very well documented in in the Old Testament. How does the structure in Elephantina compare to that? Well, um, there, evidently, there have been made uh, comparisons between the two. Uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, as uh, large as the one in Jerusalem, but uh, it was evidently a monumental building. Uh, we knew, we know, it was a freestanding building, uh, the, so the island was covered with uh, with houses, mud brick houses, and so there was an open area, uh, and in, within that area, remains of a of a temple have been found with an enclosure wall, and so this uh, this should be uh, the the Temple of Yahweh that is mentioned in the papyri. Uh-huh. And the dimensions were different, or, or we're not clear, or are you it, saying it's, it's a little smaller? It's a little smaller, yes, yes. But did it, in terms of the shape and the, 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 uh, the division of the altars and the configuration of various elements of the temple, was it similar yeah. in terms of architecture and design? It remains a bit difficult to say, to be precise, because uh, so, le- uh, so, so little has uh, been preserved of this uh, building. Uh, we, have, we are really speaking about uh, uh, you know, a little bit of the pavement and, and just, a, just a few segments of the wall. So it's very difficult to reconstruct it in 3D, let's say. Uh, but we know, know from the papyri, for example, that it had uh, uh, interior with wood, which was quite uh, expensive in, in Egypt because it was very rare. So we know a little bit about it, but it's hard to say, you know, where the altar was or how it was decorated, etc. That, that's almost impossible to say. We have no information about it. 
What about the building stones themselves? Are they similar in size and dimension to the stones that were quarried and hewed in Jerusalem? Yeah, as said, it, it, it's difficult to say. Uh, I, yeah, I cannot. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can. I cannot provide more information. It, it's just uh, you know, we, we know it was a monumental building, but uh, just uh, there's just too little that has been preserved. I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about the destruction of the temple? Yeah. So we know about this from a papyrus dating to 407 BCE. Um, it's a petition by the Jewish community uh, in which they ask the uh, governor of Judah. Uh, so of modern uh, modern Israel, where modern Israel is located, uh, to uh, to to uh, to help in the rebuilding of the temple. And the temple was destroyed because of what? Yeah, that's uh, another aspect that has been uh, hotly debated by scholars. <laughs> so from the petition, we know it was uh, in, it occurred in 410 BCE, and according to the petition, uh, the local Persian governor, uh, sorry, the uh, garrison commander, uh, was a Persian, and was bribed into, uh, into uh, setting the uh, temple on fire and destroying it. Wow. And are you telling me that the, that the papyri, that among the many papyri that are st still around, there isn't a single one that actually makes reference to the events that led up to this destruction? Uh, so, yeah, so this is a small dossier of five papyri that tell us about this, this destruction. Um, so, of, evidently, we, we only have the, the perspective from the Jewish community, and they, uh, it's a bit rhetorical, as in any ancient petition. And they want to really uh, point out that they are uh, in a position, uh, in a bad position. They cannot uh, offer their sacrifices anymore, and they really want their temple uh, restored. So they also accuse the local Egyptian priests of being involved in this matter. So it would be uh, possibly, and I don't want to get into any conspiracy theory, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it could be the Egyptians and the Persians sort of saying, okay, it's, uh, we've had it, <laughs> yeah. and sort of basically uh, destroying uh, the Jewish temple because of that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that these kinds of, uh, of, of theories have indeed been uh, proposed. But, um, say, I don't believe uh, in it so much. Uh, the, the thing is also that uh, it's only in this petition that the temple, that the priests of uh, Knum, uh, so the local god, are, are mentioned. And so I, uh, there's a, a scholar of Persian uh, history who has proposed that uh, this whole uh, history actually is about the building of a wall. So it's a legal battle uh, about a wall that is close to the temple, and that because of that, the temple uh, was destroyed. Because of the wall? Yes. Yes, yeah, so th there was a um, uh, sort of um, 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 an industrial complex uh, nearby, and uh -huh. we know from the, papyr uh, from the same papyrus that this wall was actually uh, wh what it was about. So they wanted to extend the wall, and... It was close to a, a road in, in, uh, on Elephantina, a major road, and that had been blocked by the temple of Yahweh. So by removing that temple, it uh, restored the, the, the road system, basically. So it was uh, basically an intrusion. The temple was an intrusion on the commercial byway of Elephantina. And that's why it was destroyed. It, it's a, it's a hard one to grasp. 
Yeah, well, it it, uh, it, it makes complete sense uh, when we compare it to the uh, archaeological remains. They are ongoing, and uh, so in fact, it seems that that uh, that this this wall, uh, you know, it, it encroached upon the temple and. We don't have this, but uh, because of the legal battle, uh, probably the, the result of this was that uh, the local authorities uh, demolished the temple. But afterwards, the Jewish community protested, and eventually the, build, the, the temple was rebuilt. I see. Okay, yeah. so this comes against a very unique backdrop. It, mm-hmm. it, 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 it would seem to have at least some undercurrents of hostility, but by and large, this is a civil dispute here uh, that involves the commerce and the economic fabric of the community. So to some degree, there seems to be an intersection of all these particular uh, interests, if you wish, that, that call into question the need for uh, actually – Putting the road through there, it has to go. Commerce is commerce, and uh, if you protest too much, you're going to lose the fight. Is that what we're talking about? Exactly. Yeah, it it turned out to be the the, the dispute seems to be about a very practical matter. As it well, that's what I was going to. Yeah, that, yes, uh, indeed, yes. a very practical matter. Yes. And. I'm I'm just amazed that with all the information and with all the. Um, Publicity about um, about the temple and about obviously ethnic conflict um, that there is at this point um, so little known about the temple in Elephantine. I mean, many people know about Elephantine. I don't, I'm sure that a good number of them aren't familiar with the significance of the temple in that community, and I, I would. I'm a little bit amazed myself by it. And um, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's uh, it is a highly important uh, site uh, for this reason, but also as I said, it it has uh, everything from from temples to you know even late antique churches. So it it it's it's a it's a very interesting site, and um, yeah, very worthwhile to visit because you can actually see uh, see a lot uh, that that is not on display in other uh, sites like Luxor or uh, you know other major touristic sites where you have mostly the the big temples yeah and um what what else uh what else do you see in the archaeological record uh that has a bearing on the temple and um on the nature of uh, well i'd like to call it just multiculturalism because it's very fascinating mm-hmm. to me mm-hmm. uh, what other what other things do we know what other pieces of information do we have was there a support system for the temple was there a, a, a larger infrastructure that related to the temple and major ceremonial centers secondary structures that sort of thing yes well uh, we have to keep in mind that papyri just provides us with uh, sh- snapshots of, of daily life so it it, it remains uh, uh, the Fascinating, but also the frustrating part of petrology that you 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 get a unique insight into history, but you do you cannot you can never see the whole picture. Uh, but uh, in this case, we know, for example, that the Jews uh, were celebrating the Shabbat already at this time, uh, and also the Passover uh, festival. But uh, yeah, f- how observant they were, or uh, how they sacrificed, it it remains uh, it remains uh, difficult to say. 
Well, you know, you've been doing some excavations, I assume, at some of the houses. And do you have any religious paraphernalia that's preserved in those houses? Debris, indications that, for example, uh, they were uh, preserving the laws of, of kashrut and maintaining a kosher home? Because in many parts of the ancient empire, there's very good evidence that, that the dietary laws and the dietary rituals were preserved because, quite frankly, in many parts of, of, uh, of Israel and Judea, there are areas where there are, despite the fact that there was a huge pig population, there are no pig remains found in Jewish homes. Is that uh, similar in Elephantine or no? Well, there are two things. Uh, first of all, uh, let's say the houses are located on a, on a sort of a cliff, uh, so part of it has been uh, dug away. Uh, so this is a well-known phenomenon of the 19th and 20th centuries that uh, locals used uh, ancient materials for uh, fertilizer. Right. So uh, we, we have to keep in mind that that uh, that you know we a lot of the evidence has been destroyed. Uh, the excavations are ongoing, as I said. Uh, the, the, so far, I haven't seen any particularly Jewish evidence. So these houses seem to uh, be exactly like uh, where an, a Mede or a Persian would live. Uh, I don't see difference or even a G uh, Egyptian. Uh, they are all alike. Similar structures, uh, you know, what you find is more, you know, the, the, the basic stuff like uh, pottery and stuff like that. Which is intriguing because uh, based on the fact that the temple was there, you would think that there would be items of religious significance. And uh, based on what you're telling us, it, it would almost seem that the local population was secular because they, they maintained uh, household items that were effectively un differentiated from other minority groups or other ethnic groups in the area, so there seems to be no outstanding or unique evidence for religious practice here, and that despite the fact that it was clearly at various points in time a major ceremonial center. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so for, let's say, a distinct Jewish identity, you have to turn to the papyri. So uh, apart from the centrality of the Temple of Yahweh, uh, I can mention, for example, the, the names, the, the specifically Jewish names. So even in uh, mixed marriages, uh, so for example, with this Egyptian woman, the children still get Jewish names. So that's a clear sign that, that, uh, that the Jewish community also maintained its own identity. Of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so the, there is maintenance of that. The question is, of course, where do they fall on the religious scale, on a sliding scale of uh, orthodox practice versus more secularity? And I guess that's one of those questions that still needs to be explored, right? That's true. Uh, it is also hard to say with the lacuna in the evidence, but uh, so this, uh, the whole story of the destruction of the temple it is interesting that this Jewish community uh, sent a letter to the, said the home country, to, uh, to Palestine, to the, the governor of Judea, uh, of Judah, and also uh, they talk about a letter sent to the high priest in Jerusalem. So right. this indicates to me that they were at least nominally recognized. Uh, they may not have been uh, 
orthodox between you know between apostrophes uh, for the uh, Jerusalem uh, uh, priesthood, but uh, yeah, it, it's clear that they had ties with with the homeland, uh, that they had a clear Jewish uh, identity. Uh, but you're right; uh, they have to be seen somewhere you know in the mid-range scale between uh, integrated and isolated. And do we know when the Jewish community basically dissipated in Elephantina? Yeah, well, uh, suddenly after 400, uh, actually 399, our evidence is gone, it is ended. Uh, so we have no idea what happened to this Jewish community. At this time, Egypt was again under Egyptian uh, rulership. Uh, right. So. Yeah, so it, it, what I assume is that these mercenaries uh, were provided with different opportunities, wherever that may have been, and that they left the community there in Egypt. Well, this is, again, one of those questions that more archaeological and uh, historic research and documentation will hopefully uncover in the upcoming years. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to conclude the program. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Itzi Dijkstra of the University of Ottawa for sharing these very, very revelatory observations to us. And I would encourage anybody that uh, finds himself in the metropolitan New York area to go visit the Institute for the Study of the Ancient World, which in and of itself is a magnificent building on 84th Street. And um, I want to thank you very much for appearing on our program. And uh, all of you stay tuned next week for another episode. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.